1: age successfully, making your second half of life even better than the first. Since 2020, the COVID pandemic has had a brutal impact on nursing homes, accounting for more than 200,000 deaths of residents and staff in long-term care facilities. Subsequently, the nursing home industry has been the subject of intense public scrutiny, with critics pointing to insufficient staffing levels, low wages, cases of financial abuse or neglect, and the need for greater government oversight. But a growing number of advocates are moving beyond criticizing nursing homes and stepping up efforts to reform what they call a broken long-term care system. In today's episode, Rick Gamash, the CEO of Aldersbridge Communities in Rhode Island, talks about his decades-long involvement as a distinguished administrator, a thought leader, teacher, and many mentor to many individuals in the elder care industry. Rick, who oversees four Aldersbridge communities from independent living and assisted living to skilled nursing facilities does not shy away from the myriad challenges of long-term care. He describes the trauma of the pandemic, but also the heroic efforts of staff members at every level to pitch in under extremely high-risk situations. He explains the need to change, how we pay for long-term care, as well as the need to redesign buildings and shift to smaller communities to reduce the risk of spreading infectious diseases. Indeed, we need a new paradigm for nursing home care. And ultimately, Rick Amash is one of today's, today's leaders who is helping us train the next generation of leadership. So now, folks, it's time for you to meet Rick Gamash. Rick, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Ron. Good to be here.
1: Yeah. So for the benefit of our listeners, uh, I've met Rick online through a series of webinars that I attend on long-term care. And he's, he's, I was just impressed with his, uh, his breadth of knowledge and his insights. And I just had to have him on our podcast. Um, so, um, w- there's a lot to talk about today, but before we even do that, um, I always like to, uh, for our listeners' perspective, give a sense of, uh, where our guests came from. You know, how did they get to where they are today? Because, I find their lives almost as interesting more interesting sometimes than the subject matter. So just give us a little bit of a snapshot, Rick, of how you got involved in, in uh, long-term care and, and uh, administration of facilities and where you are today.
2: Well, oh, thank you, Ron. I've been in the field of elder care for uh, 43 years now. Mm. and um, I first started, I was in college, I was a history major in college just looking for some part-time work and took a job at uh, at a nursing home in the activities department on evenings and weekends. And I thought, how difficult can this be? Huh. <laughs> I had no idea that it would really be changing my life. As a history major, I loved history and still do. And the residents who I met in the nursing home that I was working in lived history. Hmm. So, so I got to meet Uh, so many fascinating people and learn their stories from many World War II veterans to uh, someone who lost uh, several family members during the Holocaust. Hmm. And uh, since I was working in uh, Fall River Mass at the time, uh, probably the most famous thing that happened in Fall River Mass was in 1892, when Lizzie Borden supposedly took an axe and gave her mother 40 whacks. Right. And, uh, when I worked with elders in the nursing home, many of them knew Lizzie Borden, which is wow. mind-blowing to me, having grown up with that story and all the legends around it. But but there were people, it was one gentleman who had gone to the, to the home the day of the murders, and he was outside with all kinds of people. And uh, there were others who just knew Lizzie after the fact. And it, it, those kinds of stories just really brought me into uh, the, the, the care of elders, just working with elders and, and finding that I was so comfortable with elders that I ended up making it a career. So here I am 43 years later and, and still learning from elders, which is a nice thing. Yeah, that's
1: great. That's great to learn. And, and you know, it, it's interesting that because a lot of people, you know, come into this business through a combination of intention and accident. And I think that it's sort of, uh, but I, I do find that people like you, you know, really have a passion about it, which is what I enjoy, that they're really committed to it and come to it every day with sort of continuous improvement and, and learning. So I'm glad to have you in, uh, in this uh, industry. Uh, field really. Thank you. Um, so, um, so we've talked before about just the long-term care industry uh, in general, the long-term care field. I'd rather call it a field than an industry, but. Um, uh, and, and it's, and it's, has uh, many, many problems. Um, and, uh, and our previous conversation with you, you know, we agreed that you could talk a whole show about the problems, but I just want to perhaps just give a little bit of perspective and background on some of the, a couple of the things that you would work on first in terms of fixing what many people call a broken system.
2: Yeah, I, I absolutely agree, Ron. It is a, it is a broken system. It's been broken for many years and I think that COVID just shined the light on the system in in a way that had never been seen before. Where not only uh, do people, did people like me who worked in the system know how broken it was, but the general public then got a got a glimpse of what it was what was going on and how broken it is. So I, I think really that's probably the best starting point, and I'm with you. I never call what I do an industry; it's a profession or a field. Yes, right. Um, but but I think with with COVID, it was one of those things that changed everything for us, and um, by by that I mean that uh, just every every system was challenged for us. We were. Like the rest of the world, not prepared for an epidemic. What I think what's happened is now that we're a couple of years beyond the worst of it, there's a, a, a tendency to look back and with a critical eye and say, "Well, it's because nursing homes fail to have good infection control practices," and there there are there are many conversations happening about how to improve infection control in nursing homes but i'm here to tell you Ron that that ner- infection control is not going to improve in nursing homes unless two things are addressed and the first is the buildings themselves mm-hmm. the buildings themselves were mostly built in the 1970s 60s and 70s and they were built with regulations that the government adopted in the early 60s and the designers of these buildings were actually people who were alive before World War II. You know? And so many things have changed about the perspective of how much room a person needs and how much access to things like fresh air and natural light and those kinds of things, which weren't really considered. So these buildings were built like institutions. Mm-hmm. They were built. Built like hospitals, but without the funding mechanisms that hospitals have to be able to make improvements in them. So, here in Rhode Island, where I am, we have mostly shared rooms, two residents in a room. There are many other places that have a bathroom that connects between those two rooms. In other states, there are three people in a room, even four people in a room with a shared bathroom. Now, when you have three or four people on each side sharing one bathroom, you've got six, possibly eight elders sharing one bathroom. This is almost the antithesis of an environment set up to control the impact of a pandemic, mm-hmm. right? Because you've got people who are frail, who whose immune systems are compromised, and they're all sharing the same quarters for bathroom. There's usually, in these older buildings, showers at the end of the hall. One room is the shower room. And it's almost like elders are expected to live as if they're in a college dorm right. when they're 85 years old. And this is one of the fundamental problems with nursing homes is that people should be entitled to their own room. If they want to share, great, wonderful. But for most people, for me, I know, I'm going to want my own room if I'm ever in a nursing home or something like it. And, um, and, and I think it borders on in, inhumane that we still have uh, practices set up from the 1960s and that these are some of the things that need to change. So that's number one. And number two is that uh, staff wages are very low, Uh, that that the staff who do the bulk of the work in nursing homes are nursing assistants. And there are nationally about 17% nursing assistants live below the poverty line. So they're that close to just on the cusp of failing financially and so most of the nursing assistants have more than one job and for many of them they work the same job here and then they go to a nursing home down the street and work there and so if people remember your listeners remember i'm sure that with covid it spread asymptomatically like you could not have any symptoms and you didn't know you had covid Right. So you had nursing assistants who were unknowingly going from one building to the next, not knowing any, no symptoms at all. So when they were screened, they passed the screening, they go in and they work. But unfortunately, this is one of the ways that COVID spread. So this is the second area. I, I think those two things have to be addressed Uh, in order to begin fixing this very broken system. But certainly without addressing those two things, Ron, uh, we're not going to have any different outcome if there were another pandemic. If another pandemic hit right now, it would be the same thing. Regardless of our access to uh, personal protective equipment, regardless of how how many times we wash our hands and wear the masks? I mean, we're doing that stuff. It's it's the fundamentals. The building works against infection control properties, and the fact that you have staff that uh, are are sharing this, going from building to building. Uh, this is why COVID went through nursing homes much more severely and much more quickly than it did through hospitals or assisted living or or others. Mm -hmm. Nursing homes were really ground zero for COVID-19.
1: Right. Yeah, I I think I'm I'm glad we got into that early just because these are really critical points. And, you know, I think that um, a lot of the... um, a discussion post COVID has been on enforcement, and and yes, there was some abuse of you know of some of the financial um, support for institutions, but not really addressing these fundamental issues. And I think that um, you've said too in terms of the staffing and the, and the wages, it's it's that's an issue. But in one of my previous conversations, you, you mentioned two things that are important. One is that the recognition of the, the people who were involved. And just describe a little bit of what you've told me before about when this hit and the response of people in your um, community. Yes, and and then also just the lack of recognition about yeah. the contributions these people made.
2: Yes, so talking about the core staff in nursing homes and certainly in the one that's part of Aldersbridge, my organization. Um, These are people who are at the lower end of the pay scale, many of whom are immigrants to this country, uh, many of whom English is their second language. Uh, Many of them are single parents and a, a difficult life, a difficult life. And I remember when our first two COVID positive patients arrived here in it was April of 2020. And I sat down with the staff and at that point, there were no vaccines that we didn't know much about this this uh, disease. And so I said to the staff, I don't want to force anyone to care for COVID residents, because I knew that many of the staff had children at home or aging parents at home, and they they were really worried. And I was concerned that people might walk out. I was hearing other places where staff just walked out once there was someone COVID positive. And so I said to the staff, would any of you volunteer to take care of these two residents? And their hands went up. And these are nursing assistants. They don't make a lot of money. They, they are just extraordinary human beings. Their hands went up and they said, those are our residents we're going to take care of them. And every time I tell that little anecdote, it, it still gives me a chill because mm-hmm. it was such a warm moment. And, and so as bad as things were, and and believe me, in my 43 years, the COVID years have been the worst, the most difficult. But I also saw glimpses of the best of humanity when people who were literal strangers taking care of residents with covid with a deadly disease and just being brave enough to say yeah i'm going to do that this this is what i this is who i am i'm going to do that and seeing that that kind of response and seeing those things over and over and over again repeated by the people who i get to work with just really restored my Faith in humanity and 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 just how I view, uh, I, I've never been prouder to do the work that uh, I'm engaged in, as I have been uh, through through Covid, and it's just through witnessing the extraordinary acts of ordinary people. Yeah, I
1: think you mentioned to me that uh, it was a poignant comment. I thought uh, about uh, it, it is true that as things went along, there was a lot of uh, recognition of hospital workers, and they would come out and and um, you know banging at the pots, right? right? Yes, but, but no one banged the pots for the for that's
2: the right. assistance. That's in, right. Yeah, there was no pot banging for nursing assistants. Very often we even saw commercials on TV or we heard from politicians or leaders that said, uh, we recognize our nurses and our doctors and our first responders. And yes, they deserve lots of praise. But rarely, almost never were nursing assistants mentioned. And they're the ones who spend the most time face to face, with elder residents in a nursing home here at ground zero during COVID-19. And they weren't getting the recognition. I was trying to give them as much recognition as I could. But I, I didn't feel like our society, and I don't feel that our society esteems the people who care for older adults.
1: Right. No, absolutely. Um, I, I want to pick up on that uh, a little bit more, uh, but we're heading into a break, Rick. So, uh, folks, we are going to take a short break, uh, but when we come back, we'll be talking much more. Rick Amash, the CEO of Aldridge Bridge Communities, there's much more to come, so don't go anywhere.
3: Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. The boroughs are New York City. The burbs are everywhere else. Real estate is the ultimate game of risk and reward. It's the biggest investment most people ever make.
2: Fortunes are made over a lifetime and lost in a day. And we're not playing with Monopoly money. How do you stay ahead? Who's buying? Who's selling? And why? What do they know? We want the truth. You need an edge. Boroughs and burbs is your secret weapon to giving you the insider knowledge and strategies you need to succeed in the high-stakes world of real estate. From Palm Beach to Palm Springs, Manhattan to Malibu, We press the experts to expose the pain, find the deals, and occasionally predict the future. That's Burroughs and Burbs, 3 o'clock Eastern, noon Pacific, because everyone can make money in real estate. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station.
0: VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to 45 Forward. To reach Ron Roel or his guest on the program, please send an email to ron.roel at gmail.com. That's ron.roel at gmail.com. Now back to 45 Forward.
1: Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with Rick Gamash, the CEO of Aldersbridge Communities, an innovative non-for-profit organization that provides senior living and long-term care for older adults across Rhode Island. Uh, before we continue, I just want to mention you can find out more about Rick by going to my website, RoelResources.com, and clicking on the 45 Forward tab. And you can find out much more about Aldersbridge Communities, the um, organization he uh, manages, at um, www.aldersbridge.org. It's A-L-D-E-R-S bridge.org. So before the break, we were talking, with Rick, about... Um, nursing assistants and really being the backbone of a lot of care for um, residents of long-term care communities and and how they're really not recognized for their contributions. And you had mentioned in one of my previous conversations with you, Rick, what I thought was an innovative idea, which is, granted that there is an issue with with pay, compensation, and it's hard to, to and certainly we can raise the pay that, that these folks get, but that there are other ways to treat them and to kind of recognize their service and in similar ways to first responders and veterans and um, other hospital workers. And so one of the things you mentioned to me was finding ways we could provide them benefits, you know, that are beyond strict compensation.
2: Yes, absolutely. And and I think my thinking evolved on that uh, in the years that, uh, I would go for lunch with my dad, who was uh, 40 years in the Army. He mm-hmm. was a World War II vet, and he wore a cap that said retired Army, World War II veteran. And everywhere we went, people would stop. They'd come over to us, and they'd say, thank you for your service, or they'd pay for his lunch. or And and anywhere that my father went shopping, or if he needed uh, anything from groceries to a car to insurance, he was given a discount because of his military background. And and I began to think about how very often I would hear our elected officials say that COVID, we were in the war on COVID, and mm-hmm. that the people on the front lines on the war on COVID were the staff members. And I began to think about uh, whether in the future whether anyone would ever remember and go up to a nursing assistant someday and say, were you in the war on COVID? Were you one of those that, you know, cared for people with this deadly disease? A thank you for your service. And I thought, wow, you know, I can see with my dad how that affirmed his whole life, that he felt like he really contributed to the greater good. Uh, and, and, and it was just such an affirmation when people reached out to him. And I always, whenever I see a veteran with a cap, I always make a point to say something to him or her because I know what it meant to my dad. But to a nursing assistant, there there are no caps that you wear that say I was a nursing assistant. There's no recognition. and And I think part of it, um, comes down to ageism and mm-hmm. and how we don't really value older adults in our society, and we don't value the people who care for older adults. But in my mind, I wondered if we could do some things in terms of benefits for those people on the front lines in the war on COVID, similar to what veterans get. You know, could could we have uh, contracts with large corporations, Walmart, Target, or something like that, so that uh, uh, when nursing assistants are shopping, could they get discounts on things like baby formula, um, uh, baby diapers? You know, they have young children at home. Could we do things? Could we give them discounts on child daycare? What could be things that we could do that could recognize the efforts and, and the impact that nursing assistants have on lives of people who are important in our society. And I think that's the, the rub there, is that our elders important in society only to certain people? Uh, to me, very important. And I, I continue to learn from elders the entire time that I've been in this field. But for many people, and I think our policies are simply a reflection of the values of society, mm-hmm. and therefore it becomes easy for our government to say, for example, there's no money for elder care this year. Uh, there's no no increase for anything. and it's because people are old. It's not that there's no money. it's just that we'd rather give the money to a different cause. You know, there's something else, some other project that that we prioritize over elder care. and so, Uh, elders and and the people who care for them are very often overlooked. Uh, But that needs to change. As we look at the demographics, Ron, and we see that in 2027, not far away, and and that's going to begin this very steep slope up of more and more elders and fewer and fewer younger people to care for them. And what are we going to do? You know, will we begin at that point when we have a majority of people over 65 years old, over 70, 75 years old, will we then begin to value elders and and recognize that that when we put money into elder care that it is truly an investment in something that does pay off right and, you know I, I think on that on that point, um, whether it's an investment that does pay off, What I see in working in nursing homes this Mm -hmm. many years is something probably very different from what others see. Uh, I think for many people, they maybe drive by a nursing home and and say, thank God I don't have to go into a building like that. And people have a perception. It's going to smell. People are going to be, uh, you know, loud and uh, behavioral issues. And- and, and what I see, actually, I've witnessed over and over again, some of the nicest, nicest, sweetest interactions on Earth that take place mm-hmm. at uh, in the middle of the night uh, when a nursing assistant is helping to comfort someone and, and moving their pillow to make them more comfortable or shifting their body uh, so that they're more comfortable. You you are learning at that point from that elder, how to be a more gentle human being Mm -hmm. that, you know, it's, I think our society misses that. Our society thinks that once you stop doing something, you stop being an engineer, you stop being a teacher, stop being a nurse, then you're not contributing anymore. And they don't Mm -hmm. see the contributions of elders who are very uh, frail, very compromised, um, physically, cognitively, But those people, in some ways, are the greatest teachers because they teach us to be better human beings. They teach us to be more gentle, to be kinder, to be more compassionate. And I think that the world we're living in right now, Ron, there's not a lot of gentleness and kindness and compassion out there. Right. There's a lot of anger and a lot of, you see, road rage basically every day. Mm-hmm. And um, people aren't nice to each other. Yet right. what I see in the nursing home of all places, I see in the nursing home, this this transfer of how to be kind and gentle being taught by a resident to a staff member without an exchange of words, even just mm-hmm. with touch, just gentleness, and then. It's been my experience that our staff members then take that gentleness and kindness with them when they return home to their families at the end of the day. Hmm. So I think the work that we do with elders is actually making the world a better place. It's it's making the work, it's making the world a gentler, kinder uh, place to be. Yeah.
1: I totally agree, and I think that that um, it, it's going to take a while. But I, I hopefully see it changing. Some of it is demographics, as you pointed. Demographics is destiny, since to a certain extent. So as we get older as a society, we tend to pay attention to them. But I, there, it's going to take some real introspection and real um, will to change some of the way we do some of our practices. But it's worth doing because I think. You know the one thing that that yeah I talk about a lot with people is that um, uh, when we spend money on taking care of older people, we're investing in 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 in, in our society. We're not. It's not when we we have this image of you know okay older people they're a drain they're a cost you know um, younger people contribute older people take and that's really not as you point out the case certainly even before they get into um, nursing facilities um, where we're living longer and vital lives, but people with some support can continue living very vital lives within um, nursing homes. And and I even now sort of, I'm not sure if it was you mentioned to me, but why we even need the the term nursing homes, you know, because immediately the connotation is, well, these people need nurses, and many of them do, but that's not the the focus of it, the focus of it is to continue living as people in home in our in pe- places that we consider our homes. Mm-hmm. so I think there's a lot to be said there um, and we can keep talking about this but I, I do want to spend some time Rick for our audience to, to have you talk a little bit about your um, community, Aldersbridge, Bridge and, and how it's different and how it yes, it is a nonprofit but but how, how does this make it different and, and what is it that you do in your um, uh, complexes that that may be somewhat different?
2: Oh, thank you. Yes, I could talk about Aldersbridge all day. <laughs> okay. I, I I really do love it. In all of the years that I've spent in this uh, field, uh, this is really the best, the best job, the best organization that I've been part of. It's been really wonderful. And we, this organization was founded as the United Methodist Elder Care hmm. um, back in the early 1970s. And um, when I came here about uh, seven years ago, um, in my first month, I had a couple of interesting interactions, first with someone who was applying for a job. And she came in and she said, before you spend any time interviewing me, I, I just need to tell you, I'm not a Methodist. (laughs) <laughs> and I said, uh, that's okay. You know, I'm going to teach you the secret handshake and no one's <laughs> going to know. Uh, and then within a couple of days of that, I had a friend of mine call and say, my mother needs an assisted living. Where should I look? And I said, what about us? And he said, we're Jewish. We can't go there. You're Methodists. And, and so I went back to the board and I said, this is interesting because I just started here. And I've had these two interactions. Is this normal? Do you have? And they said, We've been dealing with this for 40 years. And I said, Have you ever thought about rebranding? And they said, We've been talking about that for 40 years, too. <laughs> and so we ended up working with board members and staff members and, and some focus groups. And we created Alders Bridge as the new name, mm-hmm. which uh, has kind of. Uh, a uh, nod to United uh, Methodist faith because in Aldersgate, England is where it started. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, it can also be viewed as a more secular name. And it, it, you know, I think it's a classy name. And so Alders Bridge became the name of the organization. We have um, affordable assisted living. We're the state's largest provider of affordable assisted living. And, and we take Medicaid in assisted living, which is rare. Mm-hmm. So we have the largest number of Medicaid individuals in assisted living uh, in Rhode Island. And you know, we don't have buildings that are palaces. We don't have uh, grand pianos in the lobby or crystal chandeliers in the lobby. What we have, though, are incredible human beings that work here. And, and that's what we focus on, is how can we nurture? How can we make sure that not only are we providing the extrinsic rewards that all employers need to provide to their staff, but how can we make sure that our staff members are getting the intrinsic rewards of doing this kind of work? Because it takes a special person to do this work, and we're fortunate to have been able to recruit and retain a lot of very special people. And because we've done that, it's allowed us to branch off. So, we have a nursing home, long-term care, short-term rehab. We have an outpatient rehab. We have the assisted livings. We have independent living. We're opening an independent living for members of the LGBTQ community, first of its kind in the state of Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. And we have a program that we call the Health Navigator. And this is an individual Who works with people who live in their homes in the local community, and they need access to services and supports in order to stay living in their homes in the community. And our navigator works with them to help them do that. Now, there are other models kind of like this around the country, and they're mostly uh, geriatric care managers who are paid privately. Mm -hmm. So families with some affluence, with some wealth, are able to have someone kind of help them make all the decisions and help steer their mom or dad, whichever, wherever they need to go. In our case, what we're doing is focusing on people who don't have those resources, don't have the financial resources to do that. Maybe it's someone who lives in a third floor tenement building and their adult children live halfway across the country and they're worried about mom and dad. And in a snowstorm or are they able to get groceries to can someone shovel their snow, all of these things. And we want to provide peace of mind by connecting that community resident with services and supports to Mm -hmm. to allow them to stay living there. And we're able to do it. We've written for two years, we've been able to fund it with grant funding just mm-hmm. by saying, "Here's what we're doing. We're keeping people out of the emergency room out of nursing homes, even, just keeping them in their homes by doing these simple things. And we've been able to get grant money to uh, cover most of the cost of the program, which has been really, really helpful.
1: yeah, so it's it's really a comprehensive approach in ways that are goes. Those- I think much more thoughtfully than than simply providing a continuing care community, you know, which, you know, people can start with, coming in as independent, and uh, if they need more assistance on the way, go up to assisted living and nursing home care. But, but, but in a much more affordable way, I think you don't have to really put up this lump sum of money at the beginning. And, and I'm not cr- being critical. This is one model, but I think your model really gives people a much more. Um, human approach to it, much more individualistic and thinking about what do really people need. Um, So um, one thing I wanted to talk about is the way you do things and your affordable approach um, also presents you with challenges um, in terms of uh, financial costs of, of running an organization like this. Um, and you've mentioned to me that it's really put uh, extreme pressure on your skilled nursing facility. Um, and so I want to talk about that, about how you've addressed this issue. I think that you're, you're handling it in an interesting way. Uh, but I don't want to interrupt your story. So I'm going to uh, go to a break right now. We have our, our next and last break uh, so folks uh wait don't, don't go anywhere this is a great story coming up so um, we'll be right back after a short break listening to rick Amash the ceo of Aldridge bridge communities much more to come so don't go anywhere
3: voice america is on linkedin connect with us today
0: self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics.
3: It's time to unlock some of the best-kept secrets in health, wealth, and happiness. Are you ready to live your life to the fullest and hear insider tips from today's experts? Then tune in to The Forbes Factor with celebrity TV host, keynote speaker, and inspirational icon, Forbes Riley.
0: now back to forty-five forward.
1: Welcome back, folks. We're talking today with Rick Gamash, the CEO of Alders Bridge Communities in Rhode Island, an innovative not-for-profit organization that provides senior housing and long-term care to older adults across Long Island, Rhode Island. So, before the break, we were talking to Rick about um, his uh, his organization and the different things it offers. Uh, One thing that I wanted to talk about a little bit more is uh, his skilled nursing facility, uh, which has been under extreme financial pressure for a number of reasons. So it's an extraordinary
2: story about how he's handling these things, and I wanted you to hear it. Thank you very much, Ron. As I said early on, COVID changed everything in nursing homes, and certainly the cost structure of nursing homes changed quite a bit. Because there's been an unprecedented nationwide staffing shortage. And so all available money has gone towards recruiting and retaining staff. Mm -hmm. And so um, we rely, as a not-for-profit, we rely mostly on state Medicaid. 82% of the people who live here Uh, are on state Medicaid, which means that they've spent their money, they don't have any savings, they don't have anything, and they're relying on what's really part of the uh, state welfare system, which has always underpaid for nursing home care, but the gap has never been as great as it is. Mm -hmm. Prior to covid it may have been that we were underpaid by about $35, $45 per resident per day, but you would make it up on some short-term rehab residents or managed care or private pay residents. But um, now the gap, instead of being 35 or $45, is $155 per resident per day. That's Mm. a shortfall between what it costs us to provide the care and what we're paid to provide the care. And so you don't have to be Einstein to do the math and figure out that you're going to go out of business. Mm -hmm. And so for the last year or so, I've been working with the elected officials in the state to say, we really need to have... A different reimbursement system. And in Rhode Island, there's something called a, a rearray, which by statute is supposed to happen every three years, where the state looks at cost increases and makes an adjustment to the Medicaid rate. The last time it was done was in 2012, and mm. the, the state skipped it in 2015, 2018, and 2021. So now in 2024, they're going to rearray the costs. And what they're finding is that the costs have gone up so much that they're saying, we just don't have enough money to do it. We'll have to do it over a period of time. So, for uh, in Rhode Island, six nursing homes have closed, three others are in bankruptcy currently. And this is part of a national trend where in Massachusetts, across the border here, there are more than 20 nursing homes that have closed. Uh, this is happening everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's, it's just a, a sign of how broken the financial system is. And so I was hoping the state might help us with some funding uh, to get us to the point where they're going to do this rearray cost increase, a reimbursement increase, which is scheduled for October 1st. But they're not going to be able to help us before then. And so I went back to the team here, a very wonderful group of people that I get to spend every working day with, and I said, we can't rely on the state. We have to figure out our own way here. So how are we going to save this business? But let's do it in a way where we don't shut the doors, we don't discharge our residents, and we don't lay off our staff because we love our staff, we love our residents, And and I feel, as their CEO, an obligation to try to do everything I can to take care of our own, whether they work here or live here. And so the team really worked on this kind of day and night for a long period of time and came up with the idea of opening a assisted living memory care program that would be for people on Medicaid. There are a lot of memory care assisted living programs in the state and in the country But they're for people who have money. They're not for people who've run out of money. And if there were programs like what we're planning to open, you could probably reduce the census in a lot of nursing homes because there are people who live in our nursing home and in every other nursing home who could qualify. But there just aren't the kinds of places that can take care of them. So we are right now in transitioning. We're taking the second floor of the building and taking those double rooms and turning them into studio apartments, private apartments. And we've said to the state of Rhode Island, we have about 20 residents who we think would qualify. And the first 14 that they've reviewed, they've said, yes, every one of them, you're right, can be cared for in an assisted living for Medicaid. And, and so we're transitioning over one room at a time, and we plan to relicense the organization as an assisted living memory care. Now, when we started doing this, we met with the uh, staff members and we said, assisted living doesn't have nursing assistants. They have medication technicians. They have people who are more cross-trained to do different jobs. And so we got a grant to pay for 17 of our nursing assistants to go back to school to become medical technicians so that they could remain with us, remain right on that floor, caring for the very same people they were caring for, but with a different skill set. So we're upskilling our staff, but keeping them. And then with our residents, we're at a point now where um, we are not having to say to any resident, You need to find a new place to live. I can't imagine if you're 85 years old being told that you're being evicted and you have to find a new place to live. I think that's horrible. And I think Mm. the fact that there are places like mine that are faced with these very difficult decisions and they're laying off good staff members and they're discharging residents and they're they're really just – breaking the hearts of residents and their family members and staff members. uh, I I think these are all signs of how badly we need to fix this system, Mm Ron. So so what we're doing is by attrition, by attrition, when a room opens up, because either a resident has passed away or they've gone home after a successful rehab, we go in and renovate the room, turn it into a private apartment. And we're playing kind of Rubik's Cube with people, Mm. if you will, where we're trying to mix and match and move people with the dementia diagnosis to this second floor, and we're condensing the nursing home program that we have, we hope that we can always afford to keep it because we have so many people in assisted living and in independent living who from time to time need that nursing home, and I feel an obligation to provide it for them if they need it. Right. But we just can't afford to do it. And we can't count on the state to help us at this point. We had to figure out our own way. And so right. this is what we came up with. Yeah.
1: Well, you have figured out your own way. And I think it's extraordinary that uh, you're doing it without evicting the residents and without laying off staff. So, you know, um, as is the borrow your words from earlier, it's the worst of times, but the best for humanity. So uh, that's a terrific uh, story. Uh, so we have a few minutes left, Rick. And, I, and with those minutes, I just wanted to talk a little bit about your sense of legacy. what you've mentioned to me, that it's very important to, me, to you uh, to teach the next generation. Um, so what, do we, what are you doing to do that? And what do you think they need to learn?
2: Oh, thanks, Ron. I I teach at Rhode Island College. I teach long-term care administration. I teach long-term care laws and regulations. And this semester, I'm teaching a leadership seminar to graduate students. And again, just as I learn from older adults that I get to work with and 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 be with, I learn from students. I think one of the best ways that you can learn is to teach. And so, just being able to talk about how, uh, how to develop one's leadership style and how to be an authentic leader helps me to be a better leader. And I think ultimately what people need to learn is that there's no one right way mm-hmm. uh, to, uh, to be a leader, that so much of it depends on who you are, what your values are, how, um, what crucibles you've overcome in your lifetime. Uh, what are the things that really shaped you? And and I think that uh, as I look at the work that we're doing here with this closing down of the second floor and, and and transitioning it to assisted living memory care, that's a crucible for us. That that's where we're taking a real hardship and making something good out of it. And so that's really the lesson that I'm trying to teach uh, to students is that you take these hardships in life, and rather than retreat from it and say, "Oh, you know, this is too painful. I'm I'm going to go in a different direction." but rather to find something good, make something good of it. And, and I think that that's how you become a good leader ultimately is that you're able to take these terrible situations and, 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 and make something good. It's just, it's a crucible. So I, I think that's uh, part of my uh, legacy. I, I, I think my values uh, I want to help people grow and whether that's my children or whether that's people I work with, who I love to see, grow into leadership positions, or students that I work with, or I, I mentor young administrators through the American College of Healthcare Administrators. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's been a great program as well. So these are all the ways that I'm trying to give back at this point in, uh, in my career, having done it for so long. Uh, I've you know, made a lot of mistakes, and I can teach people how to avoid those. And maybe I've done uh, some things well, and I can, that can rub off on people as well.
1: Yeah. Uh, um, in addition to that, I know that you've also been sort of active besides the teaching and mentoring. You're, you're um, <laughs> continuing to learn yourself by participating with other people in collaborations. And, and uh, for example, I know that you're involved with the Eden Alternative, I, I guess is a culture change organization. Um, and so just in, in, in a minute or so, just give me some of your, your thoughts on working and collaborating with others who are involved in this uh, mission.
2: Absolutely. I think there are three organizations, and I'll go through them very quickly. I'm involved in all of them. The first, the Eden Alternative, is the largest culture change organization in the world. And what their mission is, is to try to remake nursing homes, just trying to make it so that the people who live there are not lonely, are not helpless, are not bored, and that their well being is the focus of everything that's done for them and with them. And the second organization is the Live Oak Project, Mm -hmm. which is a group of people from around the country uh, who are absolutely committed to reimagining, redesigning, and transforming the current nursing home model in the United States. And I've been involved in that in several years. And uh, it's it's how I met... uh, the Grey Panthers of New York, who are also part of that, and how, how we've been connecting with people in different states and different organizations. And the third is the Moving Forward Coalition. They're based in Washington. It's something that is run through leading age uh, in in Washington. And it's based on a 600-page report by the National Academy of Science, Engineering and Medicine that came out a couple of years ago saying how badly the nursing home system in America is broken and what we need to do to fix it. And so the John Hartford Foundation granted some money to leading age and said, we need people to work on this. And there are literally hundreds of people, stakeholders like me, involved in working on this. So there are a number of groups all committed to the same thing, recognizing that the nursing home model no longer works. It's obsolete, needs to be replaced. Tomorrow, the Grey Panthers of New York have a two o'clock Eastern Time um, Transition Tuesday, Transformation Tuesday, and they're going to talk about this, uh, one of the new models that's being proposed, it's called the Einstein option. And I've had a little bit to do with that. Uh, mm-hmm. they're not one of the architects of it, but there are some people who work very hard on that. But all of these movements are out there and we're beginning to connect the dots between people. And we hope we can convince elected officials that now is the time to make these necessary changes. We have to do it now.
1: Right. Great. Well, there's always much more to talk about with you, Rick, but we'll have to leave it there for today, and I will invite you back another time. So, folks, uh, tell your friends if they missed my conversation with Rick Mosh today, they can still listen to it as a podcast on voiceamerica.com. Just search for my show, 45 Forward. You can also find it on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, Our Heart Radio, or go to my website, roelresources.com, and just click on the 45 Forward tab. Um, and if you have uh, questions for Rick, um, uh, what's the best way to reach you, Rick?
2: Well, uh, you could send them to CEO at org. That's okay. probably the best way. Okay. And if anyone wants to check out our website, as you said, www.aldersbridge.org, and uh, feel free to click on the donate button there. We're a not-for-profit great we're doing a lot of good things
1: great okay well folks uh, thanks for joining me Uh, if you have any questions or comments I I love hearing from my listeners uh, uh, email me at ron.roel at gmail.com so folks be be sure to join me next Monday 12 noon pacific time 3 p.m. eastern time we'll be kicking off uh, Women's History Month with Annalisa Wolfe who just published a book on the myths of success for women of color Guide to leadership so until then folks keep moving forward 45 forward
0: thank you for tuning in to 45 forward please join your host ron rowell for another great show next monday at 12 noon pacific time and 3 p.m eastern time on the voice america variety channel we wish you a great week